And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not feared his father charge the people, had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took the sheep and the oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And, Paul, and Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not, but he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For the Lord lit... For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servants this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul, Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff, that is in my hand. Here I am, I will die. 
And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went their own, to their own place. When Saul had taken kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zoab, against the Philistines. Wherever he went, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. So the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malshuat, and the names of his two daughters were these. The names of the firstborn were Merib, and the name of the younger, Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaz. And the name of the commander of the army was Abner, son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Lord, we are thankful again for the privilege of coming together and Lord, sitting under your word. Sometimes, Lord, with a passage like this, we're not exactly sure what it is that you intend to teach us, to counsel us with. But we ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit and his strength and his guidance. Lord, to reveal to us, Lord, the things that you desire for us to see. Allow me as your messenger to be faithful to you, to reflect the truth of your word to the hearts of your people. And Lord, would you have your way with us this morning? We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you were to ask many people in our country maybe that have somewhat of a biblical background, how do you think you will get to heaven? Here are some of the responses that you might hear. Well, I think that I'm a good person. If I treat people well, if I'm kind and do good deeds, then God will accept me into heaven. Someone else might say, well, I I know that I have done some bad things in my life, but I think that God will also look on the good things I have done and see that I am basically a good human being. You know, we all sin, but we also do many things that are good. He wouldn't send me to hell because of my failures. He would have to take into consideration my good deeds too. Another person might say, well, I go to church, I give to the poor, I cut my neighbor's lawn, I read my Bible, I love my kids, I sacrifice my time for the good of others. Certainly, I'm doing enough to enter into heaven. And friends, answers like these, and there are many more that we could share, are common in our society. But they all have one thing in common. They all are seeking to measure up to God through their good works. And we shouldn't be surprised to hear people speak like this because this is how the religions of the world promote the pursuit of God. They promote the idea that man must do or accomplish works in order to merit 
or to favor God. So in order to gain God's favor, for example, Catholics will do good deeds on earth so that they can move up the ladder of grace and hopefully reduce their time in purgatory. Mormons will do good deeds so that maybe when they are ushered into heaven, they will be given a greater planet or a greater blessing, so to speak, in that time. Muslims will do good deeds, which we might not call good deeds. Um, In other words, the cutting off of heads and the tragedies that we're hearing about today so that they can have the merit of full uh, and sensual pleasure in heaven. Hindus will do good deeds in order to move themselves out of their caste into the next reincarnated life. I mean, again, could go on and on with the world religions. In all of these examples, the people involved are truly seeking to gain God's favor, but they are doing it by their own means. So let's not think, however, that the broad umbrella of what is religiously called Christianity is immune to such thinking. Sadly, much of Christianity has drifted into a works-based view of salvation. A view that says, in order to reach God, I must be a good person. I must treat others with kindness. I must give to the church and to the poor. And in those contexts, what scripture uh, calls the gospel is changed from a God-centered transaction where Christ does the work on our behalf on the cross to a man-centered transaction where Christ is the example of how to gain favor with God. So many world religions will say, you know, we we are impressed with Christ, with all the, the good things that he did, but we don't necessarily recognize him as the son of God. So follow his example, certainly. Give, his, uh, give your life like he gave his life, sacrificially, sure. Feed the poor that are around you. Uh, you know, tend to the physically hurting and suffering, and you will gain God's favor and enter into heaven. And friends, it changes from God doing the work through Christ to us doing the work to gain Christ. Now, friends, this is not uncommon at all. And as we, as we shift our attention now to our text, to, to Saul's kingship and the events that are unfolding in this passage, we will be faced with Saul's struggle to gain God's favor. When you have abandoned God and God has abandoned you, your effort to gain God's favor, unless it's through the avenue of repentance will be an avenue of human merit to somehow appease God, to somehow please God, to somehow gain his favor. And this text warns us of the foolishness of seeking to gain God's favor by our own means rather than by God's. Friends, this is a constant struggle. And there are nuances 
that can lead us down a path where we think that we are pursuing God his way when in actual fact we've shifted things around and we are now seeking to attempt favor with God by virtue of our performance. Now God had revealed himself to Saul through both Samuel and God's written word, the law. If you remember, a sitting king was given the responsibility to write out God's law, to read God's law, to follow God's law. So if Saul was doing the things that a king was supposed to do, he would have written the law out, he would have been reading the law, and he was responsible then to follow that law. But sadly, Saul does not obey God's instructions, and as a result, he and his descendants are rejected by God. And don't, you know, don't just breeze by that. Imagine what it means to be rejected by God. Let that settle in. As a result, he will not have the legacy of sons and grandsons sitting on the throne of Israel. That ultimately will go to another man by the name of David. Still in chapter 14, we encounter, for the second time, Saul's son, Jonathan. Now, how many of you like Jonathan as a character? There's something about Jonathan. In fact, you're actually reading the story. If you've never read 1 Samuel, you didn't know the history of Israel, you'd be reading the story, and you'd be thinking to yourself, okay, Saul has blown it, but Jonathan's coming. But the sad reality is, if you know the story... Saul squelches Jonathan. And Jonathan, of course, is already cursed in that sense. He is already on that line of, of, of that, that is going to be stopped because of Saul's failure. And yet we, we read about Jonathan. We like him. We see him. We love his tenacity. We love his, his energy. We love the fact that he, he wants to just jump out in this great faith. So he's nothing like his father. He is eager to trust in the sovereign God of Israel. And he's demonstrated that twice. When he took the Philistines on in, in Geba and then just before this text as he scaled the rocky crags at Michmash which resulted in 20 Philistine soldiers dying but more than that it created this panic among the Philistine people that spread out now into this confusion and Israel being starting out with 600 men gained, gained momentum against 35,000 Philistines and they went out and routed them to the point that we're picking up the story here in this text verse 24 an amazing reality of of great victory in the face of great opposition. But friends, it was also a great uh, day of great foolishness on the part of their king, Saul. And that is really what we're gonna be looking at today. This is, this is really what this passage now is all about. It's going to unfold for us the great foolishness of Saul. There's gonna be a foolish oath, there's gonna be a foolish Worship. There's going to be some foolish inquiry, and there's going to ultimately be a foolish legacy. And, and as we look at each of those sections, there's going to be a, a point of application that's going to be helpful for us, that we're going to see a struggle that we could face if we are not careful. So let's begin by thinking about the foolishness of Saul's oath, the foolishness of Saul's oath. 
Now notice what it says in verse 24. And the man of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So there was this, there was this pressure from battle going on. And it came from the Philistines. And it was lasting a long time. I mean, the, the Philistines had, had overtaken and taken Michmash, but now uh, they had lost that because of Jonathan's just incredible act of faith and, and, and all the, I don't want to say, providential responses of the Philistine army. But they had been hard-pressed. It was hard going all day long. But not only that, now we find out as we go back in the story and we kind of fill in some of the gaps, which is what we're doing here in verse 24, we also see that there was a hard-pressed reality by virtue of, of an oath that the king put on his own soldiers when they went out to take on the Philistines. Notice what it says. So Saul laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. Now why would Saul create such an oath? What's the purpose? What's the thinking behind it? What did it serve? Was he thinking that the hunger would somehow motivate his soldiers to fight harder? Now, I just want to step back and say, uh, there have been battles that have been lost because the soldiers think that they've routed their enemy, and when they do that, they get maybe into an enemy encampment, and now what they do is they shift their focus from chasing the enemy to plundering their stuff. You've probably seen you know, movies like that where after battle, people are plundering. That's, the, that's one of the, the, the rewards of winning a battle. But this is not so much about the plunder as it is about food. And anyone who's been a soldier knows it's important to eat, to keep your energy up. And I don't think that the army of Israel had little little packs in their backpacks that they could pull out and put hot water in and suddenly you know, there was like you know, pot roast or something like that. I don't think it worked that way. So anytime they came across you know, some bread or something that was edible, it would be good to take that and to, to give them sustenance. But Saul says, no, here's the vow. Here's what I'm putting on you. So this was an oath not to eat anything until the battle was won. And we can understand, again, just the, the, the need to have a nibble, but, but if they did, they would be cursed. In other words, there would be a judgment on them, and ultimately that judgment would be death. That would be the thinking. So what's the motivation behind this oath? If we compare Jonathan's reasons for a battle with Saul's reasons, we see a staggering difference. I just want to remind you of 1 Samuel 14, 6. Here's Jonathan speaking. Come, let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord by saving by many or by few. In other words, Jonathan's motivation was the honor of his sovereign God. He might just do something here. Now Saul's motivation is for personal vengeance. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. 
John Woodhouse says this, the man who did not obey God in chapter 13 now made no reference to God, expressed no confidence in God, and was obsessed with having or avenging himself on his enemies and coercing his people into supporting him. Now if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 12, we can see the stated motive Saul gives us as to why he took it upon himself to sinfully offer a burnt offering. And I want you to to notice this. He says, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So in, in Saul's perverted way, he is looking to seek his own selfish ends as well as the favor of the Lord, and so he, he puts on his own men this vow. Now notice how the people react. Just a couple of things here. All right, the, the soldiers don't eat. They want to honor their king. They, they come through this, this, this forest that's dripping with honey. I don't know if I've ever been through a forest that's dripping with honey, but here they are. I mean, when the, the bees are flying, you know, they're, they're wild, and now it's, it makes sense, right? We've, we figured all things out. We kind of institutionalize it. But, I mean, in, in a forest, these things happen, and, and they're going through. But, no, we have to honor the vow of our king. We want to respect him. And it says for fear, but that's kind of a, a respectful kind of a fear. And so there's something admirable here about these soldiers. But we're also told, then, that Jonathan did eat of some of that honey, just a little bit, just... And as he did that, he was rejuvenated. His eyes became bright, we're told. And we're also told that he didn't hear the instructions of his father. And then someone of his soldiers near Jonathan confronts Jonathan and lets Jonathan know what his father has said. And I just noticed Jonathan's response to his father. It's clear that there's this growing rift between father and son. And Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. That's no small statement. My father, the king, has troubled the land. That is exactly what Achan was accused of in Joshua 7. You've troubled the land. He's saying that his father, the king, is the source of Israel's problems. He's not only saying that as we continue on. He says, see how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. I just want to really just put a circle, put a little mark next to that statement. That's very significant. What he's saying here is this. This defeat has not been great. This could have been a staggering defeat against the Philistines, but it is not, and the reason it's not is because of the sinfulness of my father who imposed this oath on his army. And the effect of that is that the Philistines have not been completely routed. So Saul had imposed a ban on eating until night, and the men were famished, and they didn't have any energy, and Jonathan is laying all this at the feet of his father. So in his sinful and foolish wisdom, Saul created this, this oath 
and it was unnecessary, it was disheartening, and it was damaging to the very people that were following him with great allegiance. Now friends, what's going on here? What is it that God wants us to see in this text? I wanna begin by saying this. He wants us to see that it's possible to do really stupid things in the name of religion. And we're gonna kinda tease this out in a more specific statement. In this case, it comes in the form of what I'm calling foolish religious restrictions or rituals. Or not rituals. It shouldn't be rituals, it should be, wait a second, I'm way ahead here, aren't I? There you go. Foolish religious obligations. That adding to God's instructions will gain God's favor. Just think about that. If I add here to what God said to do, what did God ultimately tell Saul to do initially? Go to the Philistines and rout them. But now, Saul is adding a responsibility on his people to say, well, we're going to do it, and we're going to do it without eating. That somehow that is a more spiritual endeavor. That somehow this is going to gain favor with God. And somehow if we can just prove to God how much we really want him to answer our crisis here, then he will look on us and he will smile and he'll give us what we're asking, whether that's a, a battle, whether that's a prayer request, whether that's a need that we have. Now what kind of restrictions beyond those taught in scripture do we place on ourselves and others for the purpose of trying to gain God's favor? Some of the answers are gonna include things that scripture clearly says should be part of our daily pursuit of sanctification, but it all depends on how you and I are approaching them. So what we have in Saul's oath is a form of legalism. And just like you can see up there, you know, legalism is, is seeking to gain God's favor through our performance. It is seeking to add to what God says in his word. Okay? Now let's just think through this. I've grown up in the context where legalism was all too present. In a Christian context where the church that I was in had a lot of rules, had a lot of standards, had a lot of measuring sticks that we needed to conform to, and those were means by which people would measure then people's, I would say, level of spirituality. And I'm just gonna go through some here, and some of you might like, oh, that's crazy, but there's also a place to say, some of these are actually well thought through, and there's a good, there's a good place for these, all right? Let me just start here, all right? I'm talking about things that are not necessarily clearly taught in scripture, things like, well, don't drink alcohol. I mean, if you, if you were, ever to drink alcohol, your, your place in the church would drop down here, right? Which was difficult for me when I went on a trip to, to Russia and I was taking communion. And having that kind of background, you're thinking, oh, you know, this, this stuff touched my lips and how do I tell my people that? And okay, unfortunately, in that context, I wasn't in a church that was like that, but that's the kind of stuff that would happen. We don't smoke, we don't play cards. We can play Rook, but not have the picture cards, right? And we can Christianize that thing so it's okay. Don't go to movies. Don't wear makeup. That's for the ladies. Um, hey, 
you know. <laughs> don't wear pants. That's also for the ladies, right? Don't have long hair. That's for the men, all right? And I'm just saying, these are standard things that were in that context. And maybe some of you came from churches that were, were like that. Let me just step back and say that some of those things are not necessarily bad things. It's okay for a guy to have short hair, okay? I, I, I like to see a lady in a dress, in a skirt. That's okay. There's something that is feminine about that, all right? Uh, you have to determine whether or not alcohol is going to be a reality in the context of where you live and thinking through the effect of that on, on your walk with God. So these, these are not necessarily all bad. The, the, the issue here is not about the, the thing. The issue is how you approach the thing. And whether or not that thing is a mark of spirituality, whether that is a mark of maturity, where you created a context where you're looking at people and saying, ah, well, I saw them with a deck of cards. They're down here now. And I'm just giving you just one list. There's more that we could add to that. Now, this is what happens when spiritual wisdom and application, along with a sensitivity to others. So that's, that's, that's a good statement. We're, we're trying to apply and we're trying to create standards that would reflect God's truth, but they end up morphing into spiritual obligation that if violated would somehow result in loss of blessing. Friends, that is tragic. We must acknowledge that there's a place for for clear thinking and wisdom to be applied and standards to be a part of our life. But the moment we make them across the board standards that are not clearly taught in scripture, we are, we are either in the midst of legalism or we're right on the precipice of it. To put it differently, some will say real Christians do things. Some say they don't do things and they do things. Real Christians do attend church every time the doors are open. Have you ever heard that in the context of being, in, yeah, okay. Um, our doors right now are closed, but you're already here, so that's good, all right? Um, always wear your Sunday best. So for the men, that would be a suit and tie. For the ladies, that would be dresses. Um, you know, read four chapters a day. Did you read your four chapters a day? Because if you didn't read your four chapters a day, then you're slipping, friend. Especially if you're not wearing a suit and tie. Then, <laughs> all right? All right? You've got to give at least 10% in the offering plate. You have to, all right? Um, you have to serve in the church whenever there's a need. Now, there's, there's an element where there's some good things there, right? I mean, I think it's good for people to set as a, as a goal or to have as a standard. You know, I want all my giving to reflect a, a, a 10% kind of a, of a number. That's a really good goal. The point here is that these things, when raised to the level of we're measuring your spirituality, we're measuring your maturity, can become a form of legalism. And friends, that is really unhealthy for us as individuals. It's also unhealthy for us as a church. Now, legalism happens when we add something to God's word and legalism takes place when we seek to gain God's favor through our performance. So we're saying, God, I gave 10%. Now you're gonna be pleased with me. Now look at this new suit that I have and I'm not wearing makeup, all right? That's gonna be a good thing, right? So you just, just gotta think through, are you trying to impress God, or are you resting in Christ and his grace that says, listen, you can't get to God by impressing him, you only get to God through what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. 
Right? The song says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. In other words, God is not interested with us trying to impress him. He's interested in us coming humbly before him saying, yes, there is nothing impressive about me. And anything I am is only because of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Now, it is important here then just to simply add, as a Christian now, as, as Christ has embraced us into his family, there are going to be things that he calls us to to live out that family relationship. So he wants us to be spending time in his word. He wants us to be thinking about how we impact the world and, and, and how we can, have, we, can do, we can do that in a damaging way by choices that we make. But we don't seek to somehow gain favor with God by saying, look what I did here and look what I did here. We do what God calls us to for his glory and trust that in doing that, we have simply been faithful to honor and to live out the grace that he has given us. So in Saul's case, it was fasting. In our case, it can be the do's or don'ts. But the bottom line is this. When God has, what God has intended to be a means of experiencing grace can be quickly changed into a means of earning grace. So we must be diligent to avoid that possibility. Let me explain what I'm talking about. Um, God has given us his word to read, right? And I'm working through the Robert Murray McShane system here, and I, I've missed some days. It's like, you have, I can't believe. You're down here now, Pastor Rod. And I saw a deck of cards on your desk. So, all right, you're really, really low, right? No, no so, so saying, I want to read four chapters a day, or five, depending on what it is in that week, is, is, is a good thing. But if I say, you know what? I'm doing the Robert Murray McShane reading. Are you? And I haven't missed a day. In fact, I've doubled up. See, what God has given us to be a means of experiencing grace, spending time in his word, has now changed into a means of earning grace. Right? These spiritual disciplines are the channels through which God wants us to be experiencing his grace. Now we move from this first point here because of this oath to the next one, and I'm calling this Saul's foolishness, uh, or the foolishness of Saul's worship. Now we'll, 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 we'll land the plane there eventually. We're gonna take some time to kind of set the stage and see what's going on here. On the heels of Jonathan's words about the defeat not being great, the narrator gives us the scope of the limited victory of the Israelite army. So you, you read verse 31, you, you read, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. You're like, wow, that's really good. And the reality is, that's not really good. It's a limited victory, why? Because they didn't finish the job, okay? And once again, the narrator reminds us that the men were very faint. And so because they were very faint, it says in verse 32, the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. Saul's sinful and foolish oath created a stressful context for the, the soldiers of Israel. It was unnecessary, but it provoked the soldiers to act sinfully before the Lord. Now I wanna be careful here. The provoking does not excuse their sin, but it sure helps give us a perspective as to how easily they fell. 
Here they are just going all day and they are famished. And now it's nighttime and they are just hungry. And as we know, that is not a good time to go to Safeway, right? Because you will buy things that you should not be buying. We all relate to that. We just put this in the context of what's going on here. They're hungry and they've reached the mark where it says, okay, you're, you're done. You've met that standard. Now, right? And just they're going to go out there and they're going to eat and eat and eat and eat. And they're not careful because their hunger is what's ruling them at that point. And so they're more concerned with satisfying their bellies than they are with honoring God and his word. And so the little indication that we have here, it says here, they slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood, is a reminder that what they are doing violated the law that was set down. So they're satisfying their hunger, but their behavior is in violation to what God had established in his word, in particular, uh, Deuteronomy 12, 23 and 24. And so someone um, went to Saul and said, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord, eating with the blood, and they were, okay? Now, the question is, what then would Saul, as the king, and as might wanna say, the, the one who's supposed to be representing the people to God, or, or that kind of middleman, what, what was he going to do? Notice what he says in verse 33, and he said, you have dealt treacherously, roll a great stone to me. So he calls now for a proper slaughter to take place under his supervision or the supervision of his leadership. So the stone is brought, they bring all their, their animals, it says here they're, they're what, their sheep and, and their ox, and they slaughtered them so that the blood was poured out onto the ground. So now the, the, the method has been corrected. There's a sense you could say they are being obedient now because of Saul, isn't that a good thing? As the leader here, you know, they were doing this in a disobedient way, they were dishonoring God. Now I've created this, this situation where they can come and they can do it and they can be obedient. Now what's missing in all of this is a heart of repentance. There was a desire to slaughter the animals correctly to stop sinning against the Lord, but where is the call for the soldiers to seek forgiveness for their sinfulness? Where is the humility in Saul that acknowledges that he is the one who created this sinful situation? Saul has the audacity to accuse them of treachery and of violating God's, law, God's word when that is exactly what he has done and is presently doing. Okay? And that is the way, friends, of what I'm calling religious formalism. His true heart is even more on display when he chooses to build an altar to the Lord. He was having the people now conform to this ritual obedience without the heart of repentance and confession. It says in verse 35, and Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And so building an altar assumes that Saul was having sacrifices offered on the altar. So you see now how we're getting now to worship in this context. 
Oh, it's great. The people sinned because they were slaughtering the animals on the ground and they were eating the blood. Now I've corrected the method of slaughtering and now I'm going to build an altar and we're going to worship you, God. The problem is there's been no repentance. There's been no direction to God. Certainly there's been accusation of sin. But there has not been a talk of humility and confession and repentance and a heart that desires obedience before the Lord. But Saul will learn very, very soon, chapter 15 and verse 22, to obey is better than sacrifice. Friends, as we think through the application here, the lesson for us is that we can be guilty of foolish religious rituals, of thinking that performing religious rituals will gain favor with God. And it's a short journey from worshiping God to worshiping worship. What do I mean by that? We do, I think we really try to do a good job here at Gateway. I'm not sure that we do the best job at it, but um, we want to have good preaching. We want to have um, good fellowship. We want to have um, good time of singing that is often also called in our vernacular worship. But see, it's possible that we can worship the form of worship rather than recognize that that worship is a means by which God has called us to worship him. We can worship, for example, you know, you might leave on a Sunday from a particular church and say, wow, the music today was so good. Oh, man, I want to come back and hear that again. Or they come out and say, man, that pastor was really gifted. His communication skills, I mean, he was, he was funny, he was clever, he was able to, to kind of communicate his thought through all the different things that he does, whether it's PowerPoint or energy or animism or whatever he's doing with his body and communication, man, that was good. And so the focus now becomes on the worship of the actual means rather than the content. My friends, my job as a pastor, I want you to hear this. My job as a pastor is not to create your food. My job is to say, God, what is the food? And I'm like a waiter, and I pick it up, and I do the best I can to find your table and to give you that food without going like this. My job is to be a mouthpiece for God, to simply allow God to speak through his word and then through me verbally, hoping that I don't get it wrong because I want to make sure that it's being pressed home accurately and effectively and correctly for your growth. It's not about me and my cleverness and my cuteness and my skill and my oratory. Now, God can use those things to some degree, but they can also be the focus of a sermon rather than the word of God being the focus of a sermon. We were singing songs today. I hope you're not only just singing a song, but you're actually reading the words and thinking about the words as you're singing. Now, sadly, too often we love our worship more than God. And religious formalism moves us from putting our trust in God to putting our trust in the worship. And friends, so much of this world is attracted to this. Man loves his ceremonies. He loves his candles. 
and his prayer vigils. He loves his music, his ornate buildings and stained glass windows. My, my wife and I were in, in England this, this past, was it October, and there are so many beautiful churches there. But you walk in and they're empty. Beautiful stained glass, lots of history. And you're, there's a party that's just afraid to even mention the gospel because that'll be offensive. You actually believe? in the vicarious atonement of Christ? Huh? Yes, I do. I believe that he suffered in my place. <gasps> well, we don't. Well, you don't believe in the gospel, but look at our church. And there are people who are unbelievers that love the churches, the architecture, and the windows, the history of it all. Oh, we love that. And we who seek to be free from such formalism can be sucked into that kind of mentality also because we love our music. You know, we could probably divide this room by who, you know, the, the, the old hymns and the more contemporary stuff. Right, you know, pastor, you're meddling now. I know, it's okay, I'm having fun. Um, right, or we love our preaching, expository or application oriented stuff, right? We, we love the experience of gathering together to worship God. We love the, the experience of being together. That's good, but the experience is the means by which, or I might want to say the result or the fruit of actually communing with him. It is not the goal in and of itself. So if we're coming to church saying, I, I can't wait for this experience, so let's get things trumped up. Oh yeah, get the music going, yeah. Preacher, preach harder, preach louder with more emotion. I love that. Oh, I was good. Pastor was really animated. That was great. Really? Did I say anything that was worthwhile? See how we, 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 we shift from what is central to what is peripheral, and it's the peripheral that ends up being the focus. And it all becomes this religious ritual of saying, I want to go through this, and by going through this, somehow I'm gaining favor with God. So all these things, the songs, the preaching, the unity, the experience, are right and necessary in a healthy body of Christ. I mean, we want those things, right? But we can do all those things, and hear this, without regard for the sin that is in our hearts. We can sing songs in praise to God and at the same time be celebrating a lustful thought or harder, uh, holding in our heart this, this bitterness and this anger. Now friends, we can go through the forms of worship and our hearts can be far from God and instead we're trusting not in God, but in the particular form of worship. Friends, be careful. Be careful. Worship that is empty of humble, contrite repentance falls short of the ears of God. It is empty worship. It is self-oriented worship. It is worship that seeks to gain God's favor by man's method rather than by God's standard. So no matter how small or insignificant our sin is, God calls us to keep short accounts so that when we are worshiping, we are worshiping either with a clean heart, a broken and a contrite heart, or a repentant heart. Friends, listen, as we come and we, we, we sing praises or we're sitting under the word, and all of that, as you're singing a song, you may be struck in your heart by the words of that song about a sin that you've been struggling with, and the Holy Spirit brings that to mind. What does God want you to do? 
in that moment of song, as you're transitioning from one slide to another on the PowerPoint, just, you're, you're, it's like, oh Lord, thank you for showing that to me. I, I need to repent of this. You're right. That's worship. That's the purpose of what we're doing here. And as the word of God is open, and there may be something that I'm saying, it may be central, it may be peripheral, but something is brought up, and, and the Holy Spirit uses it in your heart to point out an area of sin in your life. You're like, Lord, thank you for showing that to me. And in, in that moment, you're like, I'm repenting of that. I'm, I'm confessing that, and I'm, I want to conform myself to your standards, God. These are all things that are happening in the moment on the way because of the manner in which we are approaching these aspects of worship. So we move from Saul's foolish oath to his foolish worship. I'm sorry, I'll leave that up there for a minute. To what I'm calling the foolishness of Saul's inquiry. Saul's foolishness continues now. During the day, Saul sought to motivate his army by saying, don't plunder. Now by night, Saul seeks to motivate his army by saying, do plunder. Look at verse 36. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. I think that Saul right now is just a very, very confused man. And the people don't want to contradict him, so they say, do whatever seems good to you. But even the priest is a little concerned about what's going on here. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let us draw near to God here. In other words, let's take some time to think about whether this is what God wants or not. Now there's a thought. And Saul inquired of God. So he's willing to go along with it. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, that's God, did not answer him that day. That's, that's a weighty statement here by the narrator. God did not answer. What should Saul be doing because God is not answering? Now friends, there are times as a pastor and as someone who's reading God's word, that I just want to jump into a story of the Bible and slap someone silly. And this is one of those moments. Don't you get it, Saul? Don't you understand? Don't you see what God wants from you is humble repentance? Don't you see that you are the problem here? Don't you see that all your efforts to gain God's favor will fall flat because you're not willing to acknowledge what God has already commanded you to do. Wake up, will you? Sadly, we can't do that. Saul isn't willing to listen to advice. Why? Because he knows what's wrong. He's thinking, of course I know what is wrong. There is sin in the camp. Just like in the day when Achan saw and coveted and took and hid the items he was forbidden to take. It's interesting here, just a little side note, how much of the Achan story parallels the things that are going on here. And we who are reading this story are thinking to ourselves, finally, Saul is getting it. There's sin in the camp. Now his son Jonathan gets what 
is going on here. He says, my father has troubled the land. So he's aware that that is the issue here. That's the same phrase, as I mentioned, that is used in the Achan story, but soon we realize that Saul isn't getting it, and his next act of foolishness begins to take shape. And so under this heading here of the foolishness of Saul's inquiry, there are really two things that are staggering that Saul does. The first one is this, his, his foolish act of blame shifting. Rather than acknowledge his own blame and sinfulness, he seeks out another to take his blame. Look at verse 38, and Saul said, come here all you leaders of the people and know and see how the sin has arisen today, for as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Now at that point in time, Saul's not aware. Hey, but you know, if it's Jonathan, hey, you know what? Standing up here, I'm being an example. If it's my son, then he should surely die, okay? So, let's, uh, let's do this together, right? So he's even willing to point his finger at Jonathan, his son, as, as a possible culprit here. But, but there was not a man among the, all the people who answered him. So, not only is God silent, who else is silent? The people are silent. They're like, okay, you know, our king here is kind of, uh, there's some things happening here, but we'll go along with it. Saul was losing it. God was silent, people are silent, but he wasn't willing to read the audience or to take the hint. Instead, he pushes his agenda to blame someone other than himself. And this is where we, we come up with the, the Urim and the, the, the Thummim. And, and honestly, I've read about this. There's some ideas as to what these are, but no one really knows specifically what they are. But the closest thing you can say is they were, they were a method of actually, um, of identifying uh, two different groups. So it's kind of like uh, maybe, you know, we call them a lot, um, maybe some, some form of dice, but basically when they were cast, it gave indication as to this group and not this group, okay? Something like that. And it was something that was worn on the, the ephod of the, of the priest. So here are the questions then, all right? So they divided into two groups. They're all the people of Israel and Saul and Jonathan. The first question is this, which group is the guilty person in? Now, you would think that Saul is thinking to himself, okay, it's gonna be the, it's going to be the people of Israel. Someone out there is the reason for our suffering. And Saul and Jonathan are taken, is what we're told. Oh, okay. So who is the guilty person? Is it me or Jonathan? And the, again, the, 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 the Thummim is pointed to Jonathan, and he is taken. And then we read the following words. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Again, another statement that resounds back to the Achan story again. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I shall die. Now what are we to make of Jonathan's words? I think there's two possibilities. One, their sarcasm, as if Jonathan is saying, like a typical son might say when he's upset with dad, right? Dad, here's the extent of my crime. I tasted a little honey on the tip of my staff, guilty me, clearly, hanging, uh, hanging offense, execute me now for my dastardly deed, why don't you, right? Kind of a sarcastic response. Or it's possibly a submissive response. Jonathan being a faithful uh, um, young man, um, maybe kind of distant from what his father is doing, is there as one of the participants, and he is saying if this is what God is identifying, then I'm willing to die. And there may be an element of both that are there. We're not exactly sure, but, 
But Saul's response reveals that this was no small matter to him, verse 44. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. This is, he's giving an oath now. You will die. Right? That's the whole point of God do so to me and more also. In other words, if I do not follow the will of God here. And this is another revelation of Saul's foolishness. Not only was he willing to blame shift, but here, here's, this is staggering. He just doesn't know when to stop his foolishness. When someone's being foolish and they're going down the path of foolishness, they, they just don't know when to stop. And everyone else around them is saying, okay, this is, this is crazy, this is enough. But they don't see it, they don't get it. So in his desire to gain God's favor, he is even willing to sacrifice his son. Now this is not the same thing as Abraham and Isaac. Totally different, because God gave instructions, this is what I want you to do. This is all the result of Saul's folly because he really knows who is at fault here. But he's stiff-arming, might want to say, the conviction of his heart and wanting to shift the blame to someone else. So Saul's credibility with the people is lost. The people had been silent, but now Jonathan's life was in danger. They could be silent no more. Notice what it says, verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. Now just think of, just think of what's going on there. The people are telling the king, you're not going to do that. He has lost credibility with the people. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. So there's another lesson for us to learn here. Another way that we foolishly seek to gain God's favor. And it is the common practice of what I'm calling foolish religious discernment that was a way that God had instituted to discern his will the problem is you do not discern God's will and you don't press God's will if God is not speaking if he's not in in the midst of it and of course God had abandoned Saul Saul had abandoned God and so now he's just going through this I want to say ritual so to speak, of seeking to discern God's will. So we're talking here about that God's will is revealed when we use his tools improperly or for selfish purposes. And in Saul's case, that Jonathan's death would somehow gain God's favor. I mean, can you imagine as a dad being foolish like that and, and wanting to, to save face and in, 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 in the, your desire to save face, you're willing to have your son executed. Now friends, it also happens when we seek to discern God's will by our own means rather than by God's. I just wanna talk, just three, three that came to mind just to kind of paint the picture of what I'm talking about, all right? Um, the first one is what I'm calling lucky dipping. You know what lucky dipping is? We do this. God, I am not sure if you want me to um, marry this person or buy this house or get this um, 
80-inch flat screen TV. Um, so I, I want you to show me, all right? And so we go, oh, and we're like, boom, all right. And I'm, I'm just going to read what's here. Go up to Gilead and take bomb. Okay, well, go up and take. That means that God wants me to do it. See, God has spoken to me through his word. That's often how people discern God's word. Oftentimes, people say, God showed me in his word. Like, you're always going to couch it in a positive way, right? God, I was reading God's word, and he told me this is what he wants me to do. I didn't tell you that. You just made a verse fit into what it is that you want. And so now justifying it as this is what God desires for it. That's lucky dipping, and the people do that. They may not do it actually like that, like, but it's kind of like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this. That one won't work. That doesn't say it. Let me see Oh, here's one, here's one, yeah, this will work. Because we want what we want, and we're trying to backfill that with what God's word says. And if it sounds something close to it, we'll kind of read the things in there. You know what I'm talking about, because you've probably done it somewhat, right? Another one is looking to the clouds. Say, what in the world is that? I was just reflecting on my life. When I I came to the United States, I was 16, and um, I was... I was a little taken back as to the culture. I was, it was Michigan, and it was dirt roads, and it was freezing, and um, I was actually a little homesick for my friends in England, and I was out one day walking around, and my parents you know, just allowed me to kind of go out, and, and I was looking up into the sky and just missing England, and, I, and I, I, I looked at a cloud, and it was in the shape of the United Kingdom. God must be speaking to me. That's where I need to be. I need to go back, and I can only be satisfied if I go back. And See, God has revealed his will through the clouds. Or, as many people do it, through a pancake. Or, um, you know, l- uh, listen, this is the kind of stuff that happens. I know we're laughing, but this is the reality where we, we look for answers in places that God is not revealing his will. And the reality is we want so much to do what our heart and our feelings are saying that the cloud may not have looked like anything like the United Kingdom, but in my thinking it did because that's what I wanted. And this is the kind of stuff that we wrestle with. And we make decisions that we say are godly decisions that are actually foolish decisions because we're not really discerning his will. Here's another one. It is simply, it is God's will. The statement, it is God's will. In my years as a pastor, I have heard people use the phrase, I know it's God's will for me to do X, Y, Z for selfish purposes, ultimately. For example, it's God's will for me to leave my spouse, to change jobs, to date this person, to stay in this sin. I remember talking to one lady, nice lady, and she made an appointment to meet with me and came in and says, I just want you to know that, um, you know, that God has told me I need to leave my husband. And I said, why? And she's like, well, we know we're not getting along. I said, well, did you open up God's word and determine whether or not, biblically speaking, you have grounds for a divorce? She kind of looked at me horrified. And I walked her through that, and it's like, you don't have grounds for doing what you're doing. You're violating God's word. She came in thinking, she came in thinking that, my, that her pastor was going to support her with the decision that she made because she's convinced it's God's will. And friends, 
It's my responsibility, but it's not fun challenging people with a decision they've already made that their decision is not really God's will. Because you know what happens when you do that? You're just unloving. You're insensitive. You don't really care about the struggle that I'm going through. No, hey, let's come. Let's counsel. Let's talk. I'm happy to help you here. Oh, but it's already God's will. I know that it's God's will. Well, you have forced scripture and you're thinking to say something that it doesn't. And here's the thing. When people say, well, it's God's will, it's kind of like saying, well, this is what I'm going to do and you can't say anything about it because it's God's will. So you're stuck. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. It is a cloak that is supposed to look spiritual, but in reality, it is cloaking your own sinful, selfish desires. God's will is revealed to us through his word by virtue of the Holy Spirit. And we need to allow his word to feed our thinking and our understanding of the decisions and choices that we make. And a decision in a, a situation like that, we don't just make independent. We, we bring godly people around us to reflect God's truth, to help us in the process, to see whether or not this is true or not. So friends, this is the problem with foolish religious discernment. It seeks to use the tools God has given us in a way that pleases us rather than in a way that pleases God. See, when you're lucky dipping, what are you using? When you're looking to the clouds, what are you using the creation of God? Hey, the heavens declare the glory of God. There it is, right? All right, just Ferrari, okay? If I can see a Ferrari up there, then maybe, you know, see how foolish that is. All right, it's back to Saul, back to Saul. We've seen the foolish oath, the foolish worship, the foolish inquiry or discernment, and now what I'm calling the foolishness of Saul's legacy. We're not gonna spend a lot of time here um, because the, uh, what we have here simply is, is, a, is a record of Saul's uh, accomplishments, um, his family, and ultimately his legacy. His accomplishments, these are all the, the kings that he defeated, these are all the people that he went up to battle with and he defeated. Um, then there's his family, talking about his sons and daughters, his wife, and then even in that family dynamic, there are some key people who are part of, uh, part of the, the, the army that are also family. But we draw ourselves now to verse 52. And it says here, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached himself or him to himself. There's just three points I want to pull out of this that I think are helpful here as we just think about his legacy. Number one, there's no mention of God in these verses. Now just think about that. There's just absolutely no, no mention of God whatsoever. No man after God's own heart, no leading his family in the ways of God, um, no removal of idols or of false gods, just facts about enemies and family, it's just it's plain. I would hope that when people look at your life, they look at my life, that one of the things they'll say is, this is a person who wasn't perfect, and I don't mean that in kind of this, this kind of nebulous, fuzzy way, but just re- realize he was a sinner, but desired to pursue God. 
as well as did this and this and this and this. That God is central. There's none of that here. It's just, here's, here's Saul and his family and his accomplishments and his legacy. Secondly, the first part of verse 52 is a sad summary statement of this text. Um, it says, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. Now consider that statement against the words of Jonathan, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. In other words, it's not a good statement to say that for Saul's lifetime, he fought the Philistines because he didn't have to, except for the fact that he sinned. See that? So his legacy is not a legacy that is positive here. This is a legacy saying, listen, you, it was, you were hard fighting all of your life because of your failure. And then the third thing I think is interesting, and it just kind of maybe gives us the focus of, of Saul's thinking, and that is this. That Saul was all about the strength of man. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him, him to himself. And what is being said here implicitly is that Saul's abandonment of God left him to seek strength in man and not in God. And this is a brief reminder to us all about the possibility of foolish, and we'll call them religious accomplishments. That's what we have there. The foolishness of religious accomplishments that somehow our accomplishments through the years justify our religious or spiritual decisions. Hey, look at my family. Look at what I've done. So the question would be then, what measures our success as people who are following God or as a church that seeks to honor God? Do we measure our success by the fact that we've gone through, I wanna say, successful challenges Times when practical progress is made. For example, you know, we secured an office, we built a building, and our finances have been healthy. Are those measures of success that always point back to godliness? No. Is it, is it a growing church family? Is it adding to the church? Is it gaining new members? Those are all good things, but those do not prove or Uh, do not necessarily demonstrate that what you're doing truly honors God because if we want to fill a building, we can do it. Can't. The issue here is this. Is it faithful humility and obedience to pursue and to protect and to proclaim what God has commanded his people in his word? There's a lot more to say on this subject. Our accomplishments are not the same thing as, God, we have sought to honor you. We need to be careful with that, as a church and as individuals. What is our legacy gonna be? What's your legacy gonna be? Now, some concluding thoughts. I wanna take just a few minutes here to, to draw this to a close. Some implications. The first implication is this. Some implications about foolish religion. Implication number one, in particular as it relates to our relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus came to rescue us from foolish religion. 
Now just think about when Jesus came into this world. He began his ministry on earth, I'm gonna say his, his active ministry, and he went for the jugular with the religious establishment that had developed under the umbrella of Judaism. He challenged their legalism, he challenged their empty ritualism, he challenged their distorted spiritual discernment. Did he not? Isn't that what we find in the Gospels? And the solution proposed by the Godhead was not that man try to work his way to God, but that God redeem man from his sin. So the transaction that took place on the cross when Jesus purchased our freedom through his sacrificial death on the cross, that was the ransom that paid for our sin. And what takes us out of this foolish, man-made religion. Now in Saul's day, it was the son that is ransomed by the people. In Christ's day, it is the people that are ransomed by God's son. Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's also an implication regarding our church, and I've listed a number of things here. This, this, whole, this whole idea, this whole concept of how we are seeking to gain favor with God is something that, that we must be careful, is not distorted in the context of our church. And I've listed four different areas. First of all, church membership. What kind of church do we wanna be? What kind of church does God want you to be a part of? Is it a church that is pushing you to perform in order to gain salvation? Is it a church that has created a culture of legalism by adding restrictions or practices to the demands of scripture? Certainly God has established boundaries in his word that, that flow out of the gospel that are necessary for our growth toward Christ-likeness. There are many clearly defined lines in scripture, but are we guilty of adding a performance mentality to our growth in Christ-likeness as a church? We gotta be careful that that is not the case. So when we challenge you, hey, you know what? This month at Cornerstone we have marriage. We we just wanna encourage you to come and be a part of that. Or next month it's on parenting and you say, oh, I'm gonna be there, and then you're not there, there can be a disappointment, but we've gotta be careful that if there's a disappointment, that disappointment doesn't turn into, now I'm measuring your spirituality because you're either there or not there. You understand that? We want good things. We wanna be eager about good things happening in the context of ministry, but we don't wanna create an environment where now we're measuring spirituality by the things that we're doing or not doing that are simply additions or, or means by which we can grow in Christ. Then the area of church leadership. How do we view godliness in our leadership? Do we measure it on externals, good looks, charm, skillful in business, right? Or do we measure it on heart issues? And scripture measures leadership on issues of the heart. That's what is godly. So when we're looking at someone to, to, to in a sense, step, to, step up to the plate in the context of being an elder, we're not looking for someone who's a savvy businessman. We're looking for people who are godly 
and who are growing in godliness and are helping other people grow in godliness and, and, and measure, the, uh, uh, measure up to the qualifications that are there in scripture. And that, that's not like a kind of a legalistic thing. It's, these are all means by which we see there's consistency and pattern of, of growth in Christ likeness in this individual. So these, these flesh out because if, if we're just kind of creating a performance thing, um, then we're gonna, we're gonna put people in leadership who are really not qualified and are, then are gonna affect the direction and the heart of the church. When we come to biblical discipleship, what does it really mean to pursue Christ? It's a really important question that can be tainted by legalism, by formalism, by a lack of discernment in discerning God's will. Is it performance? Is it being satisfied that you're doing some spiritual disciplines? Remember, any spiritual discipline is simply a means of placing yourself in the path of God's grace. So Bible reading, memorizing, fasting, stewardship, prayer, journaling, all those things are all good. They're not the ends, however, in and of themselves. They allow you to grow and be equipped. They enable contemplation of God's word. But the goal is always to get to God through his word along the channels of spiritual discipline. Finally, evangelism. What do we require for salvation? What do we require for an understanding of conversion? Are these things that you have to do? Do you have to jump through all these different hoops? We need to be careful. Are we seeking in our evangelism an approach to God that is actually works-based? Or are we proclaiming the gospel that says the work was accomplished for us on the cross by Christ. So now come as a sinful creature, humbly before God, confessing your sin, repenting of your sin, and falling on the mercy of God himself. Friends, we need to be about the latter message there, the truth of the gospel. Lord, help us. So many things for us to learn through the foolishness of Saul And Lord, maybe today there's some things that we have been touched by because of the um, nature of Saul's foolishness that we relate to. Lord, help us to be humble before you. Lord, even as we sing this song, as we we leave today, Lord, may you allow your Holy Spirit to to continue to, to press home these things and to cause us to think about these things. And Lord, maybe there are people that are part of our fellowship today that have, that have kind of grown up in a more legalistic context and, and they just see that as the norm. Lord, would you allow our time this morning to, to begin to, to give them a, a way of, of understanding how, how that is insufficient and how that really is, is putting them in more bondage. And Lord, maybe we just are too consumed with the formalities of religion that we cannot see you. All we see are the, the forms. Lord, help us to remember, Lord, that it really ultimately is all about bowing the knee before a sovereign God and allowing you, Lord, to have your way with us. Thank you, Lord, for the ways in which you have condescended to us, that you relate to us just in giving us your word and allowing us, Lord, to celebrate things like the Lord's Supper and the preaching of your word and singing together and being the body of Christ. Oh, Lord, those are things that we desperately need, but, Lord, ultimately, they are all things that we need that have as their core reality you. 
And Lord, help us to be reminded that you are central in all of that. We ask in your precious holy name.